Hello and welcome to Serious Vintage. I'm Jeff Mose. I'm Nat Mose. And I'm Josh Chappell. Today, we'll be talking about Gen Con, the Team Serious Invitational Diaper Party, and then pregnancy craving foods. These are good topics. Our guest today is my wife, Elizabeth Mose. Hello. 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 Yeah, this was her first year at Gen Con, and uh, she was also the guest of honor at the TSI diaper party since she's currently like 38 weeks yeah, pregnant. So pregnant. <laughs> uh, I don't think it's fair to say I was the guest of honor. I think really, Nat, Grandpa Belcher, I think it was a moment for him. Because, you know, I had baby showers and did, you know, all my girlfriends had celebrations. But the TSI diaper party, I feel like, was just a whole new realm of participants in this pregnancy. I guess that's true. This was the one time that I was fetid. So special. Instead of just smelling fetid. <laughs> but before we get into that, yeah, we should talk about Gen Con, right? We should talk about Gen Con. It has been a long time since we've talked about Gen Con. It has been. When was Gen Con? August. Uh, August. Yes, early wow. in August. Uh, so Jeff and I were there. This was Elizabeth's first year. There were many other Team Serious members. And actually, Elizabeth's uh, older cousin, John Mako, was there as well. Yes. He, he was our roommate. We did our usual rounds of games, playing lots of games all day, and then finding food. Yes, and I will say, as a first-time participant, it had been hyped to me in previous years that, you know, this was really a survival kind of scenario where <laughs> there's like this formula ratio of like how many showers and hours of sleep and meals you're supposed to aim for so that you don't forget. And on the one hand, I feel like, okay, that was overhyped because in fact, there is food around, there are places to get water, like it isn't quite the survival test, I thought. But on the other hand, I was blown away by how entire chunks of time just disappear when you're at Gen Con. And it feels like I just ate lunch, but it turns out that in fact, it's eight o'clock and you've been playing this game for the last six hours and just didn't even realize that that amount of time had passed. So yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe you didn't get the full experience because you weren't staying in a hotel room with like Jimmy and JR. That, that's when the survival... <laughs> yeah, you really missed out. Yeah. It, it, you really miss out if you're not staying in a hotel room with six other guys. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's fair. And, and to be honest, on I think it was Saturday late afternoon. So we had been there since Wednesday evening. Saturday late afternoon, I was just like, all right, I got to lay down and take a nap. So I went back to the hotel room and had the hotel room to myself and just laid down and took a nap and felt like a new person afterwards. So I think you're right. If that had not been an option, that would have made the whole thing, <laughs> at least the end, a little more difficult to get through. Was Saturday the day of the one night ultimate werewolf championship? It was indeed. So were you charging up for that? I think I was. Because you were in that. Yeah. And I just want to say, if I can toot my own horn for a minute here. So in the, in the one night ultimate werewolf championship, the way it works is there were villages of eight people, mm -hmm. right? And there were probably 
about 13 tables of people because I think it, it was alphabetical and it was like yeah, halfway through the alphabet. Right. I was thinking there were around, there were over 100 people for sure. Yeah. But so anyway, at the end of each so. game, so you're playing Ultimate Werewolf with that table and at the end of that game, uh, you stand up if you were the winner. And as you know, there's multiple ways that you can win. You can win by being a werewolf. You can win by playing the role of Tanner and getting voted dead, basically. Getting um, yourself killed. And then what was interesting, and here's where I'm tooting my horn, was they had the role of mortician, which is, I think, a very difficult role to play. And so it was like... What is mortician? I don't know what that one is. Oh, I knew you were going to ask me. I should have been <laughs> Sorry. more on the ball with it. You should have been more prepared. Don't well, you have a note for this? <laughs> I, um, I think it's that you have to get the person to your right Oh, that's right. Killed? Yeah, you're lazy and you want to get the person to your right or left killed. Yes. So that you don't have to work, walk very far. That sounds like a fun role. Yes. But when I was doing my role during the game, I made a little bit of noise with the card. And somebody said that in the debate period. They were like, well, I think someone over here is a mortician because I definitely heard, you know, whatever during the mortician's role. And despite that, I still managed to pull it out and <laughs> convince people to kill the person on my right. So I got points as the mortician, and I was very proud of that achievement. I think you get two points for in the way they were scoring that championship. Yeah. You got two points if you won as either a werewolf or a mortician or yeah. a tanner. Yeah. Yeah. I, I lucked into points with being mortician because the werewolf just happened to be sitting to my right, and we found him. <laughs> Yeah, um, see, that's the lazy now. Yeah, I had right. to throw some poor girl under the bus who I knew was, I forget how I knew what she was, but I knew she was innocent. But, yeah. you know, I but um, I worked it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They did some fun things with that format, though, because, you know, they did a couple rounds where it was pretty much straight rules, one night ultimate werewolf. You know, I, I'm wondering, should we explain one night ultimate werewolf for the listener base? Because I'd like to assume that people know what it is, but they probably don't. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so one night ultimate werewolf. Uh, I don't know whether it's better to start with what regular werewolf is. Regular werewolf. Yeah. The, the problem is, it's just like, man, I was thinking, should we explain this? And do we really want to try explaining this? <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll go the short route. So uh, one night ultimate werewolf, everyone has a different role. There are different rules that go along with whatever your role is. You, the basic role is villager where you do nothing. You wake up and you know nothing. And the, the enemy role is the werewolf who is the person that everyone is trying to find and kill. And you kill that person by a vote at the end. Right. And the difference yeah. between one night ultimate werewolf and regular werewolf is that instead of playing over multiple nights where you kill a person every night and the wolves eat a person every night, one night happens all in one night. Everyone knows their role and does their thing and everyone sort of comes to an agreement on who should die. And then Yeah, you have if, if five minutes to discuss who, as villagers... Well, the the table. So that includes right. both werewolves and villagers. And they're, you pretend to be an innocent villager if you're a werewolf. And if you're a villager, you really are just trying to figure out the werewolf. Right. So. And then whoever dies, that's the end of the uh, that round. And then points are awarded based on if you kill the werewolf, you the villagers all get points. If the werewolves survive and a villager dies, then 
the werewolf team only gets points. And then there's a few other roles like Mortician and like Tanner, where you get points based on something else. I forget where I was going with this. Oh, they did some fun things with the format because it was the first couple rounds were like, you know, just straight rules. Everyone does their basic role and then gets points based on how well they played. And then in later rounds, they did things like no one is allowed to talk and uh, you can only say the word werewolf or (laughs) there were some things where they adjusted how a role plays. Like, I think they they did one where the mortician couldn't vote for their right or their left. Mm -hmm. Like normally the the mortician has nothing to lose by (laughs) voting to either the right or the left and trying to get their neighbor killed. But in that round, you couldn't. So they did some fun things with different point values and things like that and different challenges. One of them was a spooky in the dark round. Mm -hmm. So it was just kind of cool. Well, and I feel like what was especially good about that is that, um, I mean, I was a little nervous. I've played One Night Ultimate Werewolf a lot with family members, but I'd never played in public and the idea of, oh, I, you know, I bought a ticket to play in this championship there's a little bit of feeling intimidated or, you know, just not quite sure, like, am I championship level? Like, should I be doing this? But mixing it up like that made it feel fun and welcoming. And like, nobody could take it too seriously. If you're all just standing around saying werewolf, 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 you know, you can't have the usual level of serious discussion at the end that you have. So normally, so um, I felt like it, made it much more fun and welcoming rather than like, oh, hey, we're here for a competition. Yeah. How many rounds does that end up being in the championship? I'm trying to think. It was eight. And then they did a final table. So the way they scored it, you had a little uh, scorecard that you kept with yourself and you were getting points at the end of each round on this scorecard. And so after the eighth round, people who had a certain number of points and above got to be at the final table. And then they played one round at that final table. And whoever the winner of that round was, was deemed the champion. Right. And what was cool about it too, there were um, some young kids playing as Mm -hmm. part of it. And I actually was at a table with two of them. They were brothers and one of them made the final table and he was, you know, eight-year-old kid with a cast on his arm yeah, having a usual eight-year-old kind of summer and (laughs) but he was pretty good at werewolf and they were serious competitors how long does it take to play eight rounds of werewolf because they're what like 20 30 ish minutes each right no for one night it's like five minutes you have the the go to sleep phase which is like you know three minutes to run through all the rolls or whatever and then you wake up and deliberation is like five minutes so after five minutes, that's it. So you get through a round every 10 minutes or so. So it's probably an hour and a half or two hours. The other werewolf has like more phases, right? Yeah. Instead of killing one person in the game ending, there are multiple rounds where the whole village is whittled down eventually to get to a winner. Yeah. And that one is a commitment because I ended up spending Thursday and Friday night Mm -hmm. in the werewolf hall So this is outside of the championship. There's a whole hallway that has village after village of people playing regular format werewolf or ultimate werewolf. Ultimate has roles other than just werewolf and villager, but it's still the multiple round long time commitment. 
And, you know, I felt like I had a real love-hate relationship with it because, again, I had never played in public before. And it's just a totally different thing because at first when you're in one of these villages trying to figure out who the werewolf is, you have next to nothing to go on because you don't know these people. So you don't know how to read their body language and, you know, you end up being suspicious of people for dumb reasons and it's a little awkward, but then it takes a long time. And I felt like the games that I played of regular werewolf would go for like close to two hours. And I guess maybe some of that is the moderators didn't necessarily set timers. They kind of just let us debate and go for a long period of time. And so actually it would feel kind of boring and involved. And like, I didn't have a whole lot to go on anyway, but then by the time you get to the end of the game or near the end of the game and you find out who the werewolf is, or like in one case, I was the werewolf and had survived pretty long. And when the villagers finally did kill me, everybody was surprised. And then, you know, hmm. there's this great sort of after game feeling where everybody stands around and kind of dissects what went on. And we're like, oh, you were great. And I had no idea. And, you know, kind of talking about what was it that tipped them off that you might be the werewolf. And so that was the part that was really fun, but it was that generally only came after like a grueling two hours yeah. of sitting around in a circle, looking at these strangers and trying to figure them out. So it's, it's an interesting experience. I would definitely recommend trying it if you go to Gen Con and have the opportunity, but yeah, hang in there until the end of the game because it, that's where the payoff is. Yeah. <laughs> that's why I asked. Cause I was, I was thinking about the, normal format of werewolf and i was like eight rounds of that yeah. in a row sounds crazy but that makes oh, sense man. That, it's a more that would be version. and um well saturday was also the day that we did goblin quest in the tomb of horrors which i have realized that goblin quest is one of the things i most look forward to about gen con now <laughs> i always feel like goblin quest is is sort of weird because it's sort of a um it goes back and forth between like sort of giddy enthusiasm and now I don't know what to do. Yeah. I, I feel like we should also probably explain Goblin Quest at some point, but I, yes, I definitely, but I definitely feel like there's a point where it's like, all right, we've done all the funny stuff and now I'm ready for things to be over. But are you going to explain Goblin Quest? So I, I have never played Goblin Quest. I, I can explain Goblin Quest. Okay, so Goblin Quest is basically... Uh, what's Who's the guy who wrote it? I can't remember. Graham something, right? Yeah, it's, it's a one-man game. And essentially, it's a very simple system wherein you and your friends each have a flock of goblins. And they have a series of attributes because they're all like flawed goblin people because all goblins are messed up and you're trying to do something extremely simple but of course it's very complicated because you're stupid goblins it's sort of a shared story experience where you decide what to do and then you roll a single die and the only outcomes are something good happens something bad happens or you die yeah and then you have like i think six goblins to go through before you are like dead dead but the most important part of Goblin Quest is that everyone has to talk in a squeaky a goblin voice like this. And it's like really rough on your throat. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it's basically mass insanity as everyone sort of makes up a shared fever dream delusion yeah. of what their goblins are doing together. Right. Yeah. It's meant to be very fun. It's meant to be light. And you're supposed to have a crazy good time. Talking in your goblin voice. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, so we had what four of us, Jeff, me, Andy Probasco and Dwayne Haddix. And Dwayne had put together the, um, it's, it's a Dungeons and Dragons, um, source book, right? Like it's a, the tomb of horrors is notorious as just being unforgiving and just like murderous because the puzzles are all very dangerous, etc., and have terrible consequences for getting them wrong. So, and we were like, well, we'll do that. But with goblins, right. The, the goblins who can't like, you know, change a tire are going to go yeah. through the most lethal Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, but it's handy. I mean, that's a handy way to do it because obviously like we're not serious D&D people. We're not up to the level of taking on the Tomb of Horrors. But when you have like 24 goblins that you can have die on the way through, right. that makes it a little bit more attainable. Yeah, I thought I thought we did pretty well. We had some some good creative teams. I really appreciated your goblin clerics. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought yeah. that was hilarious. Yeah, so my goblin theme was that uh, we were clerics, but we really didn't understand clerics. So we were all like bankers. We did clerical work. Ultimately, I think that we had excellent success because we discovered a portal to some sort of nether dimension which would be the perfect way to dispose of any sort of incriminating evidence the best paper shredder ever made yeah so yeah that was pretty good i was disappointed that you couldn't come through on the uh, warranty claim for young Deer <laughs> brown the tire goblin on my team yeah <laughs> yeah Nat's tire goblin unfortunately died, and I decided that I was going to exercise my clerical experience and try and make a warranty claim. But unfortunately, I think I died on that role. Nat, your uh, young Goodyear Brown was not inspired by Nathaniel Hawthorne, was he? I mean, it sure was. (laughs) Obviously. My entire team was the Cleveland Browns. um, Yeah, well, I mean, they were expected (laughs) to die, so it fit perfectly. But anyway, we had a great time. The only experience I have like that at Gen Con is the time that we played the Conan Barbarian game that the guy from Aspen broke when he had a broken leg and he had a backpack full of beer. And we played until like five in the morning in the hotel lobby. That was a peak Gen Con experience. Yeah, that was that was very Gen Con. We were sitting on a couch in a hallway, having just finished up playing Goblin Quest, I think. And we, we all had alcohol with us of various kinds. And this guy came around the corner and had a bottle and a source book for this RPG he made. And he was like, hey, you guys want to play this RPG? I wrote it. And we were like, yes, we do. <laughs> and um, yeah, he ran us through three hours of that or something. And was it good? Uh, Sure. Yeah. It was, it was you know, <laughs> you're actually making me realize another key component to Earlier, I was saying it wasn't as much of a survival feat as I expected to attend Gen Con, but you have to realize I was pregnant while I was there, so I wasn't drinking. And I just it just occurred to me that it might be a very different experience if you, mm. uh, depending on whether you're drinking or not at Gen Con. Yeah. Well, you certainly probably take more time for sleep for yourself. I'm sure we could find a karaoke bar in Indianapolis. <laughs> <laughs> so you could hear me uh, bring the house down with Bohemian Rhapsody again? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I do think that would potentially change Gen Con. Uh, I was going to say paper shredders. That made me think of another really interesting piece of Gen Con, which was, you know, there are other vendor booths that have oh, yeah. things other than games. And some of them turned out to be surprisingly interesting, like the 
brother uh, craft cutter that they had on display, which was um, that was neat. Yeah, it was really cool. And I I would not have prioritized stopping there, but the demo is neat. So it was this, it's basically like a printer, but instead of printing things, it cuts material to whatever design or pattern you've specified. And it works on the spot. And so they were kind of taking the angle of it's great for cosplay because you, you know, whatever detailing you need, you can easily get different shapes cut out on your own. Um, and yeah, it just, it was really cool and it felt very reasonably priced. I forget. Um, I didn't yeah, write actually, down. It did not seem all that expensive for. Yeah. It was maybe a few hundred dollars yeah, was, at the most. And it, yeah, it, it has a lot of different applications. So pretty interesting. Yeah. It kind of sounds like a 3d printer light. Yeah, yeah it was basically sort of seemed like a 3D printer for sort of fabric-y kind of items. Mm-hmm. It was a 3D printer for 2D items. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> but yeah, getting into the event hall, what were the games that people played and were excited by? I'll start with that. Um, so Go for it. Yeah, actually, it was just one thing I noticed this year was that I played several games that were RoboRally-like programming games where you'd get you know a series of cards that your you know your character token would do as you played them in order so you know you'd get right turn and left turn and go straight and whatever else and there were several different variants of that that I played including one that was called duck duck go where you were a little um you had a little rubber ducky and you were trying to navigate it around a race course in a bathtub trying to avoid drains and it really fit the theme because yeah, the way it, the way the ducks moved each turn felt very true to how a rubber duck would be floating around in a bathtub and like yeah. randomly running into things. So it actually it was pretty fun. Yeah, it was cute. It was it was actually I think it was meant for kids and up. So it's like it wasn't meant to be too complicated. You kind of had fun moving this duck around. Robo Rally seems like an interesting game to be sort of like taking inspiration from. Given it's Robo Rally is like. 25 years old yeah robo really has a decent history um i mean that goes back to i mean it probably goes back to what 94 95 when quite a while yeah when magic came out wizards was successful and was like okay we'll publish this complex game that you wanted to do in the first place right but uh yeah there was so there was duck duck go there was the tremors based board game oh yeah did you did you not see that no i did not see this one oh it was um Terror Below, and it was basically the the plot of a Tremors movie, but in board game form. That sounds great. Yeah, no, it was pretty cool. I didn't end up demoing it, but I watched a demo and read the box and stuff. And I don't remember exactly how your player token moves, but the worm tokens, so the the actual Tremors worm thing, basically. Um, graboids. The graboid, if you will. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, the, the graboid is i believe a group controlled programmed object so you're you basically everyone gets to put down cards that make the graboid move so it's semi random like you can your card can be go forward but you don't know what the other you know two or three people are playing so you don't know how the worm is going to move on its own and you know sometimes it surfaces under your jeep and eats you or 
you know, blocks the entrance to a critical building or something like that. But it was it was kind of an interesting game. They had some really cool pieces in the box. It was pretty fun looking. I know it was really popular. A lot of people were playing it the entire time. And hmm. a lot of people sounded pretty pleased to be playing it. Yeah, sorry I missed that one. Yeah. I felt like I play a lot of games this year that mostly didn't impress me. I mean, that's Gen Con, but... I kind of felt that too. But actually, there was another Robo Rally semi-clone that i played in the beta test hall which was uh an airship based game like you were all airships and you got to fly around using programming you'd set your program before each turn and everyone would move semi-chaotically and try to avoid storm clouds you in that beta test hall i love that thing it's fun <laughs> do you feel like it has a a better odds of being reasonable games than the just wandering around the exhibit hall um, I, you mean like, am I going to have a good time playing in the beta yeah. test hall versus, mm-hmm. or am I going to have yeah. a better time playing in the beta test hall? Yeah. Uh, I don't know about better time. Sometimes you have more interesting experiences because you play a game where it's just like, oh, wow, this was a trip that I kind of wish I hadn't <laughs> taken, but you know. I, I also think a real difference is in the beta hall, they're asking for your opinion. Right. And when you guys walk around the exhibit hall, you're like, oh, there aren't games that are really impressing me. Like, nobody wants to hear your opinion unless yeah. you're tuning into this podcast. Yeah, it's but, too late. Yeah, right. That's but but so there's like that satisfaction of, you know, they want to know what you think. Yeah, and, I was just yeah. thinking about mm-hmm. it like. I'm an editor. Like, that's what I do for yeah. a living. Like, my life is in the beta test hall. Well, and it also lets you feel like you're applying all this game knowledge that you have to some bigger purpose. So I only uh, played one game in the beta hall, but they were asking, like, does are there other games that this reminds you of? And so mm-hmm. even on that very basic level of like, oh, yeah, hey, check out this game or whatever, it just feels like you're being useful to somebody because you've played a bunch of games and otherwise like, yeah. What does it mean that you've played a bunch of games? It just means like, I don't know. Yeah, I'm helping. <laughs> you've had some good social experiences in your life. but Yeah. Or, Hey, are we going to get sued? Are we ripping off anyone? Yeah. yeah right. There's that too. <laughs> you get to try and find the, the broken parts of the game. Like you're trying to find the loopholes so they can, you know, close them or resolve them. That That's kind of a fun thing to do. It's just like a different game. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if you were there. I think Jeff was there uh, when we tested that elementals game. Yes, the characters a little bit were, were the creatures. They weren't really named characters, but it, the the creatures were based on like Magic the Gathering elementals, and there were some magic inspired elements in the game. But one one of the creatures had an infinite move. And it was just like, oh, we have exploited this one. This is this is terrible. You can change this immediately. <laughs> there were a number of things about that game that were just like, yep, yeah, this is busted. Gonna need to do something about this. One. We can spend some more time on this. But did it make it out of the beta test hall? I haven't seen it since, but maybe someday. I thought that we uh, we saw it again in the beta test hall. Did we? Either one year or two years following. Oh, man. I thought someone saw it in a more fleshed out form. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking about that. We did that pocket dungeon quest game and we were talking with the creator oh, yeah. of that. And it was like, this is like NetHack the board game. And he's like, I've never heard of NetHack. Mm. Do you know of any, do you know of any roguelikes? I don't know what that is. Really? You made the board game. How did yeah. you do that? <laughs> It was amazing how well he had translated those concepts into a board game, despite yeah. apparently 
parallel evolving it. Yeah, no, he it was it was it was pretty incredible because <laughs> it was like, wow, this is pretty much exactly how this should be set up if you were making NetHack the board game. So, <laughs> good job, <laughs> I guess. I do think that was one thing that impressed me, as I'm sure it impresses everybody in their first Gen Con and even subsequent Gen Cons, is just the sheer volume of how many games are out there, how many games are in production, how many Kickstarter games there are. It just is. It's insane. It is. And I kind of found myself, um, so I'm a fiction writer, and I felt like I had a lot of sympathy for people who went to Gen Con hoping to design a game or having designed a game and, you know, taking it to the beta hall or whatever, that there's, uh, I feel like I've been in similar situations where, first of all, you're part of a very long creative process, like those elemental people, if they were still in the beta hall, you know, two years later, like, that's like working on a novel, you know, you're just still, it's the creative process and you're refining things and trying to make it better. And um, I kept thinking about if anyone's familiar with AWP, which is the um, Association of Writers and Writer Writing Programs. Uh, it's their big conference every year and they get, you know, 10,000 attendees. And when I go there as a writer, I feel a little bit demoralized, you know, because it's like, oh, there's just so much out there and there's a lot of really good stuff out there and there's a yeah. lot of really bad stuff out there. But you know, I was sort of thinking about that for game designers. It would actually be interesting to talk to one of them and see mm. what kind of parallels there are there because it just feels like, man, you must have to really want to design a game in order to get into such a giant pool, such a long process, all yeah. of that. But labor of love. It seems like if there's a place to like bust out and make it, Gen Con is probably it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You definitely see that there are games that sort of take off from Gen Con. And like there were a number of games that I guess that they were sort of highlighted as possibly becoming like the hit of Gen Con. And they were definitely oh, sure. selling out all of their stock and they were always busy. It's, it's funny thinking about how even just like three or four years ago, the Kickstarter section was just like a back corner with a few tables. And now it's like a quarter of the convention hall. Yeah. If you can put it up on Kickstarter and you have a good idea and people suddenly catch on to it, like you're made, like you can get all the money and the support that you need in order to, to bring that and have a consumer base that's already ready to buy it. Yeah. It's, uh, on Sunday, uh, Elizabeth and John Mako and I played uh, Foundations of Rome, uh, which was a Kickstarter game that John had heard about and was really eager to play and had signed up and had tried to get into a demo the entire weekend. And we finally did it on like the last <laughs> the last time on Sunday. They did a, a pretty cool job of getting everything together and they had 3D printed. I don't remember how many pieces each individual board had, but they, they must have printed 120 different uh, Roman style buildings like little were, figurines yeah little yeah. figurines um i'm trying to give you a scale well they're like the uh the size of the things in um dark uh, tower in dark tower <laughs> um but they printed all these sets and had created this uh one one of their selling points was that all of their boards would link together and be the size of one of those ikea cubes so that it would fit exactly into one of those ikea shelves <laughs> 
the Calyx, I believe, yeah, or the something ca- like the that. Calyx, uh, yeah, the Calyx IKEA, <laughs> Neat. Uh, which is a really clever selling point. Where it's just like, oh, I know exactly what that is. Apparently, I'd have to buy a Calyx, but <laughs> you know, cool. <laughs> but you know, we tested that game and. They were doing a Kickstarter that I think they ended up delaying, right? Because they yes. decided they weren't they weren't going to be pleased with what they were going to put out, so that yeah. they were going to wait a, another couple months to try and improve things before getting things out. But yeah, like, they pushed it from November to January because yeah. I'm now on their email list. Speaking of how these things work and how you get a fan base, I mean, I've definitely opened every email I've gotten about Foundations of Rome just out of curiosity to see yeah. how the process goes. But it'll be interesting to see if they make the January cut. Yeah. I felt like they still had some real balancing. Well, that's maybe a, a little putting it a little strong. I was going to say they had balancing to do. They they did have some, I thought. Yeah, of... I felt like they needed some tweaks, but actually mm-hmm. it was pretty cool. And I, the, it was it was good. Yeah, the, the board game pieces themselves were really good if they get that kind of quality out of um because i think they're gonna uh, injection mold them for final production but if they get that kind of quality out of them later it'd be really cool i thought what the game really needed was a soundtrack cd <laughs> I, what was that game that had like the creepy background soundtrack oh mysterium has one yeah there's right? a few of them yeah fortune and glory has one right so I feel like this oh, really? one... I didn't know that. Oh yes, it's terrible. I mean, you know, it's it's <laughs> yeah, it's very clearly knockoff Indiana Jones music, but you know. I, I mean, I don't know what the broader gaming community feels about these soundtrack CDs. I always think they're kind of cheesy and ridiculous, but yeah. fun for that reason. And uh, isn't that the point? Yeah. Yeah, and so with the theme foundations of Rome, and you're building these Roman buildings, like I just want there to be like grand scale yeah. Hollywood epic music going on in the background while I'm doing this, but uh, I don't know that that is in their plans. I just thought yeah. that would be a cool touch, but Nat, uh, I can't really remember who, who won that game and by what margin. Oh, you won that game by a lot. Oh yeah. yeah right. You did. You, you did great. You mean I went all the way off mm. the scoring track. Yeah, you, I scored so high. There were, mm. there were three others of us playing and you embarrassed all of us. <laughs> um, this line of questioning seems somewhat disingenuous. It's no, it's, it's totally genuine. It's pretty much what I would expect every time. <laughs> well, which I think actually brings up another interesting thing about Gen Con because um, so Nat and I are very different in our approaches to mm, yes. competition. I am a very competitive person. I grew up with siblings. I feel like that made me much more competitive. Nat, as an only child, is much less competitive. I compete with myself. Yeah. And so, um, (laughs) and Jeff can attest to this as well. So we were walking around the game hall trying to find a game to play with uh, Jeff, John Mako, Nat, and me. And someone recruited us to a table. It was for a game called Adventure Island. And we sat down, we were getting set up, (laughs) and they were like, this is a cooperative game. And I'm like, Ugh, I'm out. <laughs> like, <laughs> I will move cards around, but I will not be happy. And I think that that is actually, so aside from cooperative games, which I mean that I just, I don't know, I'm not huge on cooperative games because I just like, I want the competition. So it's hard Sometimes for me to- Sometimes you can win better. Okay. But anyway, aside from uh, cooperative games, I think that's an interesting thing about demoing games at Gen Con is that- um, If you, I don't know, you kind of have to turn off the, oh, I care about winning (laughs) and turn on the, oh, I care about exploring cool new games, you know, but it's a weird thing to like 
Well, I think that for some of the competitive games, you also have to think about like, am I going to care about winning this like several games down the line? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Like that Adventure Island one was interesting in that it essentially did not seem to have replay value. Like right. there were a series of scenarios, but I mean, once you were done, you were pretty much done. That's right. I think I would have a hard time justifying buying something like that. Simply because of that limited shelf life. Yeah, they have that with those choose your own adventure games too. Because there's there's that yeah. new series that came out. We demoed it last year, where it was a choose your own adventure. Like you play basically just play through a book, only it's in cards, which also seemed very strange. Right, which is it's fun, but like you know, I don't know how many times you actually get to do that before you're like, well, we've gone through all of the scenarios that seem vaguely interesting. We've you know essentially read this book three times and yeah i'm done with it like you know on the other hand i feel like you have to weigh like adventure island according to my notes would have had nine rounds or like nine phases to it had we purchased it and it took us a good hour two hours something like that again time at gen con just sort of blurs it took us a while to get through phase one right. so right. i feel like um and the other game that comes to mind for this is risk legacy any of the legacy yeah, games sure yeah. yeah and i feel like i don't know it took kind of overcoming a mental hurdle to want to write on a game like write on the game board and like i don't think i could ever get over that it's you'd be fine but you'd you know you do it. and and no, so they i think you do it i think some of it is or putting the positive spin on it is that you're spending money for those hours of entertainment right, right. and like yeah if you do a cost breakdown of that and compare it to like going to a first run movie i mean you're still way better off to buy that game with the limited yeah. shelf life because you're gonna get all those hours of supposed fun out of it yeah we, we've been playing risk legacy with my dad and uh, the first thing that they have you do when you play risk legacy is sign the board so like you just break that seal immediately you sign the board uh, you get over it smart. and then after that you're on on your way i haven't played a ton of those legacy games the only other one that i've really tried was the betrayal at house on haunted hill legacy which was mm. a really cool idea and that if you've ever played betrayal at house on haunted hill like you have basically a, a house that you're exploring as you go and then eventually someone turns traitor and tries to kill you and there's very very different and many scenarios in how that happens so it's sort of randomly generated that you know this time oh it's a werewolf or this time it's a crazy doctor who's trying to catch you for experiments or it's someone who is astral project- projecting and, you know, there's multiple controlled characters by the traitor or whatever. In the legacy version, it's one house that your multiple generations of people are living through. So you're actually following mm. the house mm. in the game instead of like following characters or people, which is kind of interesting. That's cool. That's yeah. very Shirley Jackson. Mm-hmm. So what was everyone's favorite game that they played this year? Hmm. What game did you buy this year? Hmm. I bought Lost Cities, the original two-player card game version, because interestingly, that is the last in my uh, collection of Lost Cities to fill in. So I enjoy, (laughs) well, I have a, a... pleasure and pain relationship with Lost Cities, the board game. (laughs) I don't know if anyone has ever played that. Part of it is that you are um, playing cards 
from one to 10, but once you've played a particular number, you can't go back and play under that number. So it can be so frustrating because you've just, you've been holding out, you finally play like a five and then the next turn you draw a six and it's just like a slap or a, a, sorry, I went the wrong way. Four, (laughs) you draw a four as soon as you played your five and you can't go back and change it. And it's like a slap in the face, but Anyway, so that's Lost Cities, the board game, which I've played for years and enjoyed. There's a Lost Cities Rivals. Wait, yeah. Rivals Rivals. is the one where it's like a bidding game. You're like anteing to get cards. That's a fun variation. And then um, so I bought the two-player card game, which I guess is the original version. So I kind of got into it backwards. Yeah, and actually the the two-player game rates very highly as a two-player game. And Mm -hmm. it is pretty good. Yeah, we've played it. So the game I bought was Unearth, which actually I think is an interesting exercise for how I purchase games is that we demoed Unearth a year ago or two years ago. It was last year. Was it last year? And um, it was a game that I had just been continuing to think about and finally (laughs) here at Gen Con because like it was a game that I enjoyed the first time we played it, but it was, you know, that sort of. Uh, stuck in my brain and i would agree with that it's kind of funny i didn't think about it too much at the time but it's probably one of the few games that actually i remember playing like a lot of them sort of fuzz together but i remember that one pretty well yep yeah Yeah, and we've had fun playing it It, it's also a good two-player game nat and i have played it like at lunch on the weekend and you know it's it's one that's not so involved that you know you yeah. It's not like you have to stop everything and totally focus. Like it's just a fun partly strategy but partly dice rolling game. Yeah. Well, I think the dice rolling part of it is interesting in that you have three six-sided dice, a four-sided die, and an eight-sided die. The way you help mitigate some of the randomness on your dice rolling is by using the different dice. So if you need a low number because low numbers help you get one particular resource, uh you can roll your four-sided die. If you need a high number because you want to win this other resource, you can roll your eight-sided die and, you know, try and thump everyone. You know, otherwise you're kind of rolling sixes. But there's some strategy to be said and like, well, maybe this is a game where I want to roll my four-sided die as many times as possible, collect as many of these little resources and try and build them into some big point-generating thing. Or, you know, do I want to win bigger and try and roll my eight-sided die as many times as I can and overwhelm that way yeah i like i said that one the the way it structured its randomness was just really intriguing to me so i really wanted to play it again so i bought it so did you stick to the um no magic at gen con rule no yes what you played magic at gen con too (laughs) oh did i yeah we played andy's closet (laughs) cube oh that's true commander 60 card brawl or whatever oh yeah that was weird okay so you stuck to the the no magic at gen con rule it sounds like no official magic at gen con we played magic with friends but we didn't get involved in any tournaments that lasted eight hours right yeah we played one game that lasted eight hours yeah (laughs) we went to a lecture about magic that's right well kind of tangentially about magic but yeah what was the lecture uh, let's see if I have the name of the guy in my notes, but, uh, basically it is an intellectual property lawyer who is a magic, the gathering enthusiast. And so, 
the name of the lecture was kind of misleading. It's because like the secrets thought, of Magic the Gathering. Right. Like, I think the title is the secrets of Magic the Gathering. Right. The structure of this lecture is that this intellectual property lawyer takes you through a pack of magic cards and line by line examines what each of the property law elements are. So so like the TM for trademark and like what the difference between that and the registered symbol is. And- right. And why this would be registered in the United States, but not in Canada or what it means to be printed in Belgium versus you know, the United States or things like that. Yeah. But here was the one really valuable takeaway. Um, <laughs> and I guess it depends on what you were there for. I mean, my cousin really enjoyed the lecture a lot. The guy who gave the lecture was a good speaker. You know, it wasn't like he was I've actually seen him speak before. He's, he's, yeah. He actually does a pretty good job. But I did also feel like sort of some antsiness of like, okay, we're, you know, we were expecting Secrets of Magic Revealed. Well, for me, the big takeaway was uh, he talked about how at one point he had a Mox Emerald, I think, that he had won Mm -hmm. in some tournament. So this was, you know, a prized card on many levels for him. And his three-year-old daughter or something like that got into his magic card collection and folded it in half. Yeah. (laughs) And so as an expecting parent, I realized that now you have a lot of childproofing to do of your magic collection. And, you know, it's one of those things that I don't know that you would necessarily think about that, but I know I took a purple marker to like my family's encyclopedia collection when I was little, because, you know, that's what you do. And so I think the last thing we need in our lives is your set of workshops yeah. getting destroyed. Your, your family's encyclopedia collection is worth much less than a Mox Emerald. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so valuable tip there. Yeah. Were you annotating? It's just an elaborate altar. Yeah. Yeah. You know what game I really want to talk about? Yes. Silver Amulet. Oh, yeah. I, I was wondering if you wanted to talk about that. I also wondered if you wanted I really to talk about do. that game because that was uh, pretty interesting and you worked pretty hard to try and get a copy. Yeah, and I didn't. Oh. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Silver Amulet. I, I'm i interested because you played some of the, the digital game, right? Uh, I played it once. It has since been deleted. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I was curious if you had a different takeaway now that you've played it on the digital, but apparently not. Um. No, not really. It was my take on it was still that um, I'm trying to figure out where to start with this one. <laughs> it, so it's it's meant to it's it's uh, Silver Amulet is developed by Bezier Games that also developed One Night Ultimate Werewolf. As a result, it's sort of a social deduction game where instead of having one role in a village made up of other players, you have a village made up of multiple cards and you're playing against other players who have similar villages and you're trying to get the, what the least tasty village. I don't remember how that was. Yeah. The least werewolf points, which is essentially like every card has a value and you want to have the lowest value at the end of the game. Right. Because if you have the higher value, the werewolves come to your village and eat someone. Yep. So the the cards tell you how they move around and, you know, you can end up revealing cards that have abilities when they're face up. You can trade cards face up or face down with other players. You can trade cards with a discard pile. 
at various times. Like there's there's rules for how you move cards around in your village, and then uh, at some point, someone feels comfortable enough with their village that they call for a vote, and everyone else gets one more turn, and then there's you reveal all your cards and decide. You know, whoever has the lowest or whoever has the highest points loses that round. I know Jeff and I were pretty frustrated with the game simply because nothing seemed to change very much. So it was there there were certain configurations of the game where nothing seemed to change very much. And you couldn't fix your village well enough to feel like you were making a difference, really. And then the game went out. Yeah, (laughs) it's specifically there was one card. I think it was the scout where if anyone had a face-up scout, essentially you would get an additional, you would like reveal the top card of the face-down draw pile and anyone could like use that as a known draw card. Right. And we had a couple of games where someone like had an early scout and those were very sort of interesting interactive games because everyone just had a little bit more options on the table. Right. And there was more information available to people and there was more interaction. And then we had games where we didn't have that. And essentially pretty much everyone was basically playing off the face down draw pile. So you don't have a whole lot of control in what you're doing and you don't know what other people are doing. And it just sort of evolves until someone feels like they have a decent enough village to call a vote. And man, it really blew my mind how different those two experiences were because right. one felt like a pretty good game and the other was just like, yeah, I'm, we're kind of playing more. Right. It's sort of just randomly drawing off the top and seeing what we get. Yeah. I would say all of that is fair. I would point out that it's the one game I made a point to re-demo. So, you know, we demoed yep. it one day yeah. and then it was like, I kind of want to give something. this another chance. Yeah. So it was, and, and honestly, yeah, I felt the same way. And honestly, that's why... I, did the digital version too. It's available for free on whatever app store you use to, to, to play the digital version. And uh, it's pretty much the same. <laughs> I thought that the digital version was actually more frustrating because I would lose track of actions that were being made. I didn't have that problem, but maybe I was just paying more attention to it at the time. Yeah, so I, I, I might have just been missing on some of the, the transitions or something. I had a couple of situations where like, I thought I knew what my, was in my village, but then it turned out that I was just completely wrong. Oh, interesting. <laughs> cards you know? Maybe it doesn't. You can periodically like look at one of your cards in your village and you just sort of have to remember what it is yeah. because then you put it back face down. But I think what was happening was that the computer was using the card that allowed them to switch their own village in my village. Oh, yeah. And I didn't understand that that was what was happening when that transition was happening. Yeah. Well, I I was thinking in the digital version, you have five cards in your village normally, and you get to look at two of them at the beginning of the game. And there are times where it's like, you kind of hope that you either have a really high number or a really low number. And then if it's a low number, you're just like, I hope this never changes. And if it's a high number, you're like, I'm just going to get rid of this as soon as possible. Yeah. And then, you know, if you end up with another mystery number card, like you still don't know whether you've helped yourself or not. So having those, the numbers go from what, one to 12 or one to 13 or something like that. And so having like a five or a six or a seven where it's like, this could go either direction. And I don't know, like (laughs) maybe it's getting significantly better or maybe it's not. I found that game frustrating and, I, that that's why I wanted to talk about it simply because I found it so frustrating because I, I like I felt the same way that I think both of you did that I wanted to try it again because I felt like 
I felt like I had a good enough time when things were going in an interesting game that it seemed like something must be wrong in the way we were playing otherwise when we were having those bad games. But I think that that's just how that can play out. And that's very frustrating to have that, the capability of being a a fun experience, but often just not being. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, I had another game to talk about the three laws of robotics game. Oh yeah. Uh, I guess we demoed that it was, Mm -hmm. it's a, um, Mm -hmm. Instead of being a social deduction game where you're trying to figure out other people's roles, you're trying to figure out what you are and then base your play on that. You have a role that is known to other players, but not you. We demoed it a couple of times and I actually ended up getting a copy of it promotionally from the game or from the company, which was great. And when I tried to play that again, I realized that the instructions have some clarifications that need to be added to them. Hmm. I actually found it really difficult to having not played it for a couple of months to go back to it and try to explain it to people because. Did you think that the demo was leading you in the wrong direction or just that it was difficult without someone there walking you through? No, well, partly that, but partly because the instructions that are provided with the game were a little bit confusing. Ah, Uh, The way the scoring works in the game is that at the end of each round, you get a certain number of points based on how accurate your assessment of yourself was. And basically you end up with one or two points, but then those points are translated into tokens. And there's not really a clear line in the directions that says that you need to turn those points into tokens, which have random numbers on them. And then the points are sort of randomly generated out of that. Hmm. So if you get one point, you actually get one token, which could be worth one, two or three points. Oh, yeah. One, two, or three, you know, victory points at the end. There's just that clarification is missing in the final game. I think they needed one more pass on the rules to make sure that everyone knew what was going on. Interesting. Because I I could not find that in the rules. Like, I had to have that explained to me by people online eventually. But uh, we did have fun playing it. There are some fun uh, social aspects to it where different overriding overarching rules are added to the game where it's like you know you have to talk in a funny robot voice or you can't use the word yes or you can't use the word no or just things like that where you're also adding a sort of party game aspect am i am i allowed to say an adult world word on the podcast oh please oh it, it so it i didn't actually play it i just sort of watched one of the demos but it struck me as a more fun structured version of uh, yeah the drinking the drink game. game yeah i assume that's widely known is that widely known or is that like an ohio some thing? some people call it different names i don't i'm gonna bleep that out so it's gonna be really hilarious <laughs> <laughs> jeff jeff loves using the bleeper it's the best <laughs> okay well it's a charming drinking game from ohio or not from ohio but i don't know yeah. anyway whatever it's called in your state popular you in it. the midwest yeah, there you go. I'm wondering if since the game was a promotional copy and given your, your line of professional employment, I wonder if you um, edited the instructions and returned it to them. I did not. <laughs> that would be kind of a move. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that I, uh, I'm looking forward to playing that game another time so that I can use the right rules from the beginning because I think it's actually worth playing. It was fun. But I think I, as a as a game designer or owner, I would want that feedback. I mean, 
Uh, sure. Ideally, I would have gathered that feedback earlier on, but... Well, maybe they'll listen to the podcast. <laughs> I'm sure they will. I told them that I would link them to it. Anyway. I don't... I did not buy any games at Gen Con, but the game that, as Nat alluded to earlier, that I was trying to chase down was a game called, I believe, To the Moon? Is it not Ladder to the Moon? Ah, it's called Catch the Moon. Yes. And Catch the Moon is basically just a game about trying to make a structure. So essentially, there is just a bunch of cardboard ladders of varying sort of shapes. But I mean, they're all ladders, but they all have like wide ends or strange spokes or something. Or and essentially, in the middle. Yeah, yeah. And you, you roll a die and it gives you requirements on how you have to place your ladder. So it's a manual dexterity game where you might have to place your ladder touching one or two other ladders, might have to be the tallest ladder in the structure that you're creating. And if you have ladders fall, then you get a point against, you get, I think, a teardrop. And if you get tier, two teardrops, you're out. Um, and you're just trying to be the last one in. And it was just like, I think that what I have found in demoing games at Gen Con is that I am pretty much all about simplicity. Yep. And that often means like, <laughs> I think that I sort of tune out of probably 80% of the games <laughs> that we demo just because I'm just like, nope, not putting in the effort to learn this one. Essentially because I think that with the people who I have to play with in this area are not necessarily super gamer people. So I need, if I want to get them into something, I need to be able to immediately have them in the game and participating and understanding what it's about. Yeah. And so that was why this was appealing to me because if you, as soon as you like start building the structure, everyone can figure out easily what we're doing and what the point is. And it was just like sort of a fun, like we're building this thing together, but also competing against each other kind right. of game. Yeah, I thought that game was like super charming. <laughs> I feel the same way. I mean, not having gone to this Gen Con, but having gone to Gen Cons in the past and kind of going to a demo booth and they're like, okay, here are the 120 pieces we need to set up for this game. And I'm oh, just God. like, look, I'm not, I'm not interested in this. Like, it yeah. just needs to be simple. Yeah. I remember looking at the Bob Ross game last year with you, Jeff. Oh, yeah. And the guy started explaining <laughs> it to us, and both of us just, like, tuned out immediately. <laughs> yeah, there were just so many rules. Like, I don't understand like, how you've made Bob Ross this complicated. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and the things that they're, they're, like, they're talking about, like, chill points and stuff like that, It the terminology that they're using seemed, like, very laid back. But everything was yeah. so structured and rule-based, yeah. yeah. and it's like, wow, I, I don't know how you sat down with this is your theme, and this was your design. Right. Bob Ross wouldn't like that game. <laughs> I feel yeah. like I had two opposite ends of the spectrum experiences in the demo hall. One where we walked up to a table. I don't remember the name of the game, but it was um, based on, like, Chicago oh, yeah. um, villains and, like... Uh, it was like, actual it, historical people, it was called right? The, it, that it, it shaped Chicago. It was called like the city with broad shoulders or something, wasn't it? Wasn't it? <sighs> something like that. But anyway, we definitely got the sense that like the game was so complicated and had so many pieces that this guy wasn't even going yeah. to try to explain I, it to us. He was basically just giving us a taste of like, this is a super intense game with tons of pieces. Here's the flavor Good overview <laughs> and... Um, by the way, I hope you like spreadsheets. Yeah, and I, I almost felt like he um, 
I don't know, like he pre weeded us out or something. Maybe. But maybe maybe that was his thing for everybody of like just, you know, yeah. this is so complicated I can't hope to demo it. And then I had the opposite experience. I demoed horrified. And someone was, you know, someone from the game company was leading us through it and he did a fine job. But the thing was they had so pared down the oh. experience to make it playable right there and quickly that I really came away feeling like, one, it worked because I was intrigued by the game and I wanted to play it again. But two, I feel like I don't really have a sense of what the game is actually like. And that's partly what's driving me to want to play the game because I felt like I could see potential if you had, you know, normally you would have like more monsters on the board and, you know, more options than he was giving us. And so I just felt like that was an instance where the demo was too pared down because yeah. I just didn't didn't come away with it. Yeah, the right you sense. you want to be able to experience the game and see the possibilities without being overwhelmed by the minutia of everything else that yeah. needs to go on to actually play this game. I feel that way about um I have demoed I or I had demoed uh Spartacus twice at Gen Con in successive years because I had such a good time playing the demo in the first year that I just wanted to play again. And the same thing happened with fortune and glory where it was just like, I had so much fun demoing this game that I am just happy to play the demo again. <laughs> like, hmm. um, and actually a game that I was impressed with in that regard this year was the Funko pop game. Oh yeah. That game seemed like really cute and they didn't actually play I, us through a turn or anything, but it was like, this seems like it has some options without being like overbearing. To start on that, because I'm just like, this is the intersection of hell right here. Yeah. <laughs> of pop culture, like, I don't even know what I'm doing right here. But like, and I think that it was interesting that that seemed to be their perception as well. Like, we don't want you to buy this without actually experiencing yeah. it and like knowing what is going on. Like, I don't think that they would sell it to you unless you did a demo first. That's right. Or that's what they were Something saying like anyway. That. I'm sure they would probably Which take your money at some point. Bold move. Yeah. But the way that they were explaining it, I was just like, yeah, this actually seems like it could make sense and could be entertaining. Yeah. And it seemed like, like they had some cute interactions of different groups of characters. Like the, the one they showed us was like, you could play the golden girls in, Hogwarts and it was like all right yeah. yeah I'm in on this sure yeah okay what else you got <laughs> as you said the uh, a pop culture crossover like that seemed like a pretty decent game I would try this mm -hmm. yeah so yeah, I don't know do you have to own your own Funko Pop in order to play no them? they give you mini ones that come with oh. each set of characters so oh, like there's fun. you have different settings and different characters and you can recombine them however you want and whenever you get characters you get more characters and stuff like that so um yeah the i think the other game that really looked pretty cool this year was wingspan did you get a chance to demo that one i saw it yeah and i really wasn't feeling it i can see that it probably if you were like i like simplicity <laughs> um, <laughs> It appeals to bird watchers because it's visually very appealing and has cool bird facts it, on it. Yeah, yeah, it definitely looked like it had really good theming. Yeah. Yes. The, all of the art on the game is amazing. I mean, it's like like Audubon level bird drawings and it is complex. You're definitely building an engine. So like if you like terraforming Mars or whatever, like 
sure, you know, you'll enjoy this. But it was simpler than I thought from my initial plays. I think after I got into it a couple of turns, it was like, okay, I'm I'm getting what I'm doing now. It it didn't take that long to pick it up. But there's still a lot of, you know, little parts to move around and stuff like that. And the I think actually part of the big draw with it was that they had the painted pieces to go along with it. So instead of just the the pieces that come with the board game, they had the upgraded version. So like little wooden pieces. Yeah, so you had painted. little little wooden worms and stuff like that, little wooden berries and seeds and whatever else and varieties of birds varieties of birds oh a little nest yeah little nests that you put eggs into like they did a really good job upgrading the tokens on that i think the tokens that you could buy for the game were actually more than the game itself oh way by a lot yeah but my cousin and i had fun standing there adding up the price tag on like if you if you bought the tripped out version of the game that they were demoing it was just i i wish i could regurgitate the number at you i don't want to misquote it but it was impressive it was it was an investment i think the game itself was 50 or 60 dollars and then like Mm -hmm. if you put all of the upgraded pieces into it it was like 300 or something like that it was it was great but i'm i'm sure they got a lot of extra people at their demo based on that but the game itself was was good too so and conversely, I felt there was a game there that was really writing their theme hard, and that was Arch Ravelry, which was a knitting game. And, you know, I feel like there's a fair amount of crossover between gamers and knitters, crafters, cosplayers. So it was getting a lot of attention. It's a Kickstarter game as well. And I'm a knitter, so of course it immediately appealed to me, and I, you know, made a point of getting to the booth and watching it. And actually it was crowded enough that I didn't actually get to demo it. So this is maybe a little unfair, but from watching other people play it, I just felt like there was nothing about the game mechanic itself that was all that compelling. Hmm. And so as much as I wanted to come away wanting to buy it, I kind of felt like they did a nice job playing on the theme, but then, you know, ultimately if the game isn't interesting i'm not gonna buy it yeah can i talk about the omelet at cafe patishu sure yeah you can talk about the omelet because that that cafe is a place i would eat breakfast every morning when i went to gen con cafe pikachu is pretty good cafe patishu yeah whatever (laughs) um yeah so the omelet at cafe patishu was inspiring i believe it was called the bon vivant the one that I don't recall. (laughs) Uh, That might be in my notes. But anyway, um, it was the omelet that had mustard seeds worked into the egg of the omelet. And inside was ham and a fancy cheese. But the true genius of it were those that grainy mustard in the eggs. It was really good. We went back a second morning and I had it again because it just I thought that was Worth trying at home, which I have not yet done. They were like little flavor crystals. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. Remember that gum that had flavor crystals? It was like that, <laughs> but in omelet form. And less chewy. And less chewy. Did you no, get the um, the cinnamon swirl toast? We tried to. They were out. Yeah. Oh, man. They were not prepared for Gen Con. Yeah, I, I think every time... We went there twice, and both times I tried to order some you know, dessert breakfast thing, the cinnamon swirl French toast. And I think I tried to get the pumpkin bread and they were out of that too. They were just not, um, 
not ready for me. I think the you know, you get toast with your omelet, right? And in cinnamon swirl bread, is just like yeah. an option. So they're like, would you like white bread or cinnamon swirl bread? You're like, huh. Right. I'll take the cinnamon swirl bread. Yes, obviously. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that place is pretty good. I have, in the past, I've avoided it because I'm usually awake and ready to eat breakfast at a time when it's too busy to go. We were on a little bit later schedule this time and... As a result, I was able to eat there a couple of times. Yeah, I would say I had a pretty great time this year because I just slept in. Yeah. <laughs> the cafe used to have the jowl bacon omelets, but I don't think that they've had those for a couple of years, which is too bad because that bacon was just very good. Large chunks yeah, of it. Yeah, I've not seen it. They have, they have regular bacon. Not the same. Yeah. I was nope. correct. It is called the Bon Vivant. So yeah. if you go get that. Oh yeah, I want the uh, wanted the skillet toasted pumpkin bread, and they were out. I think mm-hmm. I may have also tried to get the Indiana sweet corn cakes, and they were out. This was just I... <sighs> maybe if you would stop being so basic. You can find <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I feel like this is griping about a place that should not be griped about. I mean, I, I thought they're hey, look, if they're going to really put it good. on their menu, they need to have it available to uh-huh. you. Admittedly, maybe you need to go earlier when they have it in stock. That's fair, but I'm not getting up earlier. I I will also say that this is the first time in, I think, nine years of going to Gen Con that I've ever gone to that Steak and Shake. And? It was a Steak and Shake. Yep. It was a Steak and Shake. (laughs) It was very late. By the end of the day, it was very grimy. Yep. And um, yeah, it was was fine. I mean, they have good milkshakes. That's about yeah, what you say about think, steak and I think shake. I got, did I get a Frisco melt and fries? That's probably about I think right. you did. Oh, that was after Goblin Quest and One Night Ultimate Werewolf Championships when we went there. A real bender of an evening. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this year, we also did go to St. Elmo's because Elizabeth and John hadn't been there, and I wanted mm-hmm. to make sure that they got a chance to go. Yes, and I would say the lemon butter cake was... Highly worth it. <laughs> Actually, I mean, you know, the steak was too. That was great. Don't get me wrong. But it was really the lemon butter cake that stuck with me. Man, apparently steakhouse creamed corn is all I ever want to eat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's really good too. I, I know I have raved about other steakhouse creamed corn in uh, Indianapolis, but St. Elmo's also had a good one. Did you try the shrimp cocktail? Did you get warned or did you just like go full Jeff Moe's on the shrimp cocktail? I mean, I've had it before, and Elizabeth doesn't well, yeah, eat I, shrimp, I, so she she didn't try it. Well, gotcha. I guess did you try? John the... had it for the first time, yeah, and John we did, warned yeah. him. Yeah, so I he was warned. Yeah, I think he enjoyed it. I mm-hmm. think he appropriately enjoyed it. He did not pull a Jeff because we were nice. Yeah, but yeah, I, I'm not a shrimp fan. Did you try the sauce? Did you? Have I think I dipped my fork in it and yeah. felt that it was yes, extremely spicy. I can see how you could get into serious trouble with that. It hardly counts. anyway i was thinking that probably in the future i need to go to harry and izzy's and get just the shrimp cocktail more often because they had like a meal deal when i was there once that was actually a pretty good deal i think it was like a main course a side course of dessert or something for like 20 bucks or i don't know it seemed pretty reasonable that's pretty good at harry and izzy's or at st elmo's at harry and izzy's they're the same kitchen but Mm. yeah yeah interesting the harry and izzy's is more like the Casual-ish St. Elmo's, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, man, 
We do, we don't go to steakhouses very often, but yeah. St. Elmo's is pretty good. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I feel like if you're going to go to a steakhouse, you should probably go to a good steakhouse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would say my wrap up of the wife's perspective of Gen Con is that. I mean, you're also a game player. It's not I, like that's exactly my what wife. my wrap up was going to be. <laughs> oh, good, good. <laughs> that I honestly don't know what it would be like to be at Gen Con if you weren't interested in the games. I mean, I'm aware that they have other activities that go on and quite a variety of them. You could learn to make chain mail. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think from, from the magnitude of it and from what I've heard, it certainly feels like you could find fun things to occupy yourself with. But I felt like truly the games were the draw and there is good people watching opportunity for, I mean, whoever you are like it's just fascinating to see some of the games in that um the one game hall where they're setting up truly like theatrical sets almost that are these long drawn out games you know what i'm talking about like mm. there'll be like a oh, yeah. star wars theme or they're or like they have a ship or like something that they're I don't even know what those games are, but they just look super involved and complicated and like a lifestyle. And next not... time we'll have to get you into True Dungeon. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. But... <laughs> I would do True Dungeon if Elizabeth does True Dungeon. Oh man, I don't know what True Dungeon is. <laughs> no, you're you're in for it. Is it an escape room? <laughs> kind of. Hmm. Kind of. Okay. It turns into one halfway through. <laughs> <laughs> it's really more of an escape other so, people. Yeah, sort okay, of thing. it's the game you want to get out of. Yeah. But can't. Yeah, we had a great time at Gen Con, and then a couple months later, after Elizabeth got much more pregnant, we had Team Serious Invitational diaper party. Which I think went really well. We had 16 yeah. people come to play. It's great. Magic the Gathering vintage format at our house and um, had a lot of fun. I think it's important to note, despite it being a diaper party, no one was actually in diapers. Well, not as far as we know. As Everyone was. I had a friend who I was telling about it, and he was like, oh, well, that's like a toga party, a diaper party. You just wear a diaper, right? And it's like, no, no. That's not how it works. There may have been one or more people in diapers. Has this person not had any friends that have had children? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I've I've never clearly been to a not. Party I think before. the answer to that is clearly not. <laughs> because my first thought is not like everyone's wearing diapers. But that's very interesting perspective. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, there were a lot of people wearing pants. Some of them could have been wearing diapers under their pants, but. The reason it was called a diaper party was because the entry fee for the tournament was diapers for our impending baby. <laughs> yes. And and how was your take? Um, so we got... Do we, oh, I have the official numbers. Ad lib until I get we, the official numbers. We had the numbers. official number. I think it was 3,328. And um, Di- diapers. And almost as many wipes. And we had... Is that enough? It is apparently about a one-year supply. Wow. Oh which is... Yeah. Wait. What really? Yes, there's apparently just, about a one year supply. <laughs> you go through more than three thousand diapers in a year. Yeah, well, that's over eight diapers a day. My brain just shattered. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I think early on, uh, what we were learning in childcare classes was that it's expected to be like ten to twelve diapers 
or 10 to 12 changings per day, which is, you know, that that's not quite what they said in the class, but that is what they said. Whoa. I have in my notes six to eight a day. Anyway, maybe it depends. (laughs) (laughs) Is that a diaper joke? Yes. Let's make it a diaper joke. (laughs) Nice. Um, so anyway, it's about a year of diapers. I mean, based 365, 3000 divided by 365 is 8.2. Right. It, so. But it starts off higher and then goes lower. So it's, <laughs> or, you know, as far, as far as diapers being used. So anyway, um, I also wanted to point out that, uh, we had a supplemental game of guess which melted candy bar is in the diaper. Yeah. You know, so so I set up this. Well, Th- this is a common. Yeah. Uh, it's apparently a common baby shower game, mm-hmm. and and we did it where we had eight diapers and we melted eight different candies in each diaper, or one one candy in each diaper, and everyone could submit guesses on what they thought the candies were. Yeah, can you guys I'll, do a visual that accompanies this podcast? Because I'll I'll put the game up. You can play at home. So. Yeah, I I was impressed. I had never I had heard of this game before. I had never seen it done at a shower. And I was impressed at how poop like these candies look when you melt them. <laughs> right. I set up the game and had a lot of fun melting candy in the microwave right. and also, I'm not sure I will ever eat Skittles again, even though I just had some earlier this evening. But um, they, <laughs> uh, Skittles, trying to microwave Skittles down into a poop-like substance is really interesting because the outer shells remain intact for a surprisingly long time, while the insides turn into like rubber cement. I mean, like it's got like strings the way that kind of glue has just it it was all I, the skittles you've ever delicious. eaten are still inside you i <laughs> i think that's the upshot i really do but it still made convincing poop yeah one of the candies is skittles by the way just that's yeah, oh yeah a, that's Uh-oh. the freebie there's, yeah there's your freebie <laughs> um we also uh did a game for a drawing where everyone got to wear a balloon up their shirt and when the balloons were popped at the end of the day some of them were winners of an inflatable death star beach ball it lit up <laughs> that's right that's yeah. right it lights up was was there like a winning thing inside the balloon it, i just stuck slips of paper inside the balloons so when you popped them you either got gotcha. a pink slip of paper or a yellow slip and the yellow slips were winners people were more into that than i expected i thought when that was telling me this was something he wanted to to put out it was like who's gonna want to go around with a balloon up their shirt but we have some good pictures many we have some good yeah and it it turns out you know people were telling me that they suddenly had a lot of sympathy for going around and suddenly having like this like i can't turn corners without running my balloon baby into walls and stuff I do have the official numbers, although we received some more diapers. We got more since Yeah, so this was um, simply from the end of the day of what physically showed up that day. There were 3,105 diapers and 2,996 wipes. And I am just absolutely blown away by how generous everybody was because I thought, you know, okay, admission to a magic tournament, like buy whatever little package of diapers and be done with it but people brought boxes giant boxes and different brands which is kind of cool we get to try huggies and loves and pampers and the kirkland brand and um i just i'm really blown away i did not expect 
the yeah, level every, of generosity. Every, everyone was really generous. We got a lot of a lot of diapers, a lot of um, other gifts. We got a lot of books. Um, oh, there was a diaper caterpillar. Yeah. Uh, one magic wife sent along this <laughs> caterpillar, which uh, she had seen this on Pinterest or Instagram, yeah, yeah. and uh, and recreated it. And so basically. It's the sections of the caterpillar are made out of diapers, but then in between those diaper sections are picture books. And it's all kind of like tied together with ribbon. And the front end is like a teething ring that kind of looks like the hungry caterpillar. So really cute, really fun. Is that like a human centipede reference? Uh, Kind of. (laughs) A little, a little bit. It's funny you say that because oh when <laughs> when Raja first showed up, it was like, I have a diaper caterpillar. I was like, oh, no, what is this going to be? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's interesting. I mean, it's I'm not too surprised that people showed up with like huge boxes of, of diapers because it's, it's kind of like a fun thing to do. But yeah. now the the pressure's on because you only have like one year to potty trade your child. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That that's is true. not anything we agreed to. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I think my overall impression of this, other than that, everyone was incredibly generous, and like where I'm just really pleased to be part of Team Sirius every time we do something like this, is just that Team Sirius also needs to do this kind of stuff more often. Um, as far as uh, not only getting together to play and hang out more often and, you know, socialize with one another, but also to include our families and to, you know, be generous towards other people. In this case, we were the very lucky benefactors, but, you know, recipients, recipients. Yeah. Not benefactors. Yeah. the opposite. Those are the doers. It's okay. We're the beneficiaries. Nat has pregnancy brain issues. I'm, I'm pregnancy brain. Um, so anyway, oh we, we were the very lucky beneficiaries of all this, but you know, we have done, I mean, we did the, um, the, uh, the Cleveland rocks team Sirius consortium did the, um, old school tournament in Cleveland where we gave money to the women's shelter. Uh, we did the old school and middle school tournaments here in Columbus where we gave money to the animal shelter. I think there's a lot of good work to be done where magic players get together and share our largesse with other people other groups and and things like that i think it's just it's nice that we do that i know we've talked about that on the show before but here we are reiterating it so Mm -hmm. that's all so thank you to the members of team Sirius, and we're pleased to be friends with you all of you (laughs) it's true so oh but uh the prize for the tournament was not in fact the offer to name our child that was never on the table, <laughs> despite some rumors floating around. We are not allowing any member of Team Sirius to name the child. Well, it's, it's Let's really, just be clear. It's actually, it's kind of funny because David Lance, who won the tournament, uh, he was playing Survival. I'm sure his list is available somewhere. There's results, I'm sure, that, that exist. Uh, but anyway, David Lance won the tournament. And when he arrived, he and his fiance had printed a onesie that has the the magic symbols the, the little pentagram of couples yeah. pe- pentagram of mana symbols on the front and on the back it says baby belcher 
So I figured, and it's adorable. I fi- Yo, it's really good. I figured he just called his shot and like went ahead and named the baby. <laughs> um, so uh, you know, in a couple of weeks, you guys are all going to be able to meet little Channel Belcher Moe's. Uh, you know, we'll adorable. Yeah, it's a good name. So, are we are we talking about pregnancy cravings? Oh, I sure. I think we can make it pretty short and sweet. I've never had any. I haven't either. Have you ever had a weird craving of any kind? Uh, Why don't we start with Elizabeth's craving? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's actually fairly normal, but it was not anything I had had in a number of years. It wasn't normal um, for you. <laughs> right. That's that's what I'm trying to say. How do you define what is a normal pregnancy craving versus an abnormal pregnancy? Well, okay. It wasn't like peanut butter and water. So wait, let's let's pause and say there was a moment where uh, I had a different craving. We were going to a our favorite soft serve ice cream shack up in Huron, Ohio, and the Pied Piper. We may have mentioned it it on the show. The Pied Piper. I love the Pied Piper. I've gone there my whole life, and it did occur to me, but I didn't actually act on it that I wanted like the orange vanilla twist ice cream with the fresh blueberry topping and maybe some Reese's peanut butter cups and the crunchies and like, you know, it just kept going in my mind of like, Oh, put everything in the cup and give it to me. But I didn't act on it. And so I feel like that is a truly weird pregnancy craving and aside from that one moment of it occurring to me i i don't feel like i've really had any weird pregnancy cravings so the but the one that i have had consistently that is abnormal for me is velveta shells and cheese and this is not velveta shells and cheese from the box i have been using actual velveta but i've been using the food network's recipe for the Velveeta shells and cheese. And so basically the way you fancy that up is you are heating milk. They call for whole milk. I do 1% to make it healthier. It's because so you, we don't have whole milk on hand. Yeah. Otherwise we'd use whole milk. Okay. So, so you heat the milk and then uh, you do put in chunks of Velveeta, but then you fancy it up by putting in a cup of shredded cheddar cheese as well, like normal cheddar cheese so <laughs> and, and butter of course and you melt all that together in a saucepan while you are cooking your shell pasta and then you combine salt to taste and enjoy yeah it's pretty good shells and cheese <laughs> yeah it makes it makes a good shells and cheese but if you do the if you're following the Food Network's recipe, it makes a butt ton of shells and cheese. I mean, like you will be eating those for days. So if you have the recipe, if you do the recipe in half, I have found that uh, you actually need to cut down the amount of milk by more than half or else it turns out a little mm-hmm. runny. So there's the pro tip. So clearly I have made these enough in this pregnancy to <laughs> I mean, you've made refine like, my technique. You've made like one full batch and four half batches Mm -hmm. right yeah yeah and i don't think i'm done making them either yeah but that's pretty normal mac and cheese right and and while we're on the the topic of of mac and cheese i'll have to give a shout out to the the box macaroni and cheese there's a cracker barrel brand 
and oh. it's actually very good. But the last to- the last time I had it, to be fair, was like I was out in the woods on a multi day bike trip, and it was <laughs> very delicious. But that could have skewed the results. Oh yeah. Sometimes if you're very hungry, anything tastes good. So I'm trying to think through the logistics of making a box of mac and cheese when you're on a bike trip. So you must carry along a little pot that you can boil water in, right? Or you carry a camp stove? Yeah, so we did a guided but not guided. So I had a friend that flew in from Ohio and we wanted to ride the Cocopelli Trail from Fruita, Colorado to Moab, Utah. It's about 150 miles. And we didn't want to do the logistics of like carrying everything. So there's a companies mm-hmm. that, that do this thing. And basically, they don't navigate or anything for you. They basically just say, meet us here tonight and all of your stuff will be here. And they set up like a camp kitchen and you can have like coolers full of beer and that sort of thing. So we went that uh, route. Nice. That's okay. Yeah. That's like it, really it was actually pretty nice. Huh? Like catered bike ride. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's not really that expensive. I mean, because they solve a lot of logistical problems for you because you have to get back to point A where you started and, you yeah, know, they sure. carry all your camping gear, change of clothes and, you know, cooler full of beer. That's that's the main reason, right? Yeah, right. Well, I mean, that'd be very he- heavy to ca- carry on a bicycle. So obviously you want someone else to bring that for yeah. you. Yeah. So, th- so that's why we kind of had a camp kitchen. Um, but yeah, otherwise you could carry a camp stove and boil water. Just a little more involved. Yeah. Is there a hybrid term for bicycling and then drinking beer, like cabrewing, you know, is a thing? Is there a, is there like some hybrid term? Yeah, the term is bicycling. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. But yeah, yeah. I mean, it's pretty common to carry beer while you ride, maybe one or two, if you're really committed a a six pack. Well, it seems like easy enough to do. You could hang it over your crossbar, right? There are definitely ways. Isn't this where you jump in with the legal disclaimer of how your podcast does not in any way endorse uh, biking and uh, drinking and biking, drinking and riding? Bicycling. Well. (laughs) He just gave us the definition. I feel like there are some liability (laughs) issues here. That's all. No, I mean, you know, all the stuff I'm doing, like, not on a road. It's all, like, single track through the mountains. So... That, that makes it better, I guess right? that makes it better. Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, that makes sense. That's my legal disclaimer. There you go. <laughs> I think one thing I've learned from being pregnant is that there's a real vacuum, in my opinion, in the market for non-alcoholic beverages at restaurants. You know, it just... It's hard to find a place that will actually make a mocktail. I did find one asterisk in Westerville does a nice job of um, you tell them basically the flavor profile that you typically like, and they they mix it differently every time. I've had several different several mocktails on several different occasions there, and they're all different. So that I appreciate. And then you know you go other places, and either they're just aren't very good options besides pop or soda or you run into things like we went to a place a taco place that was having happy hour am i supposed to mention names of restaurants as oh everyone's going to be going there this weekend because it's oh, condado it's condado and i love condado don't get me wrong but <laughs> and they have a good happy hour but the thing is nat's alcoholic margarita was on the happy hour and it cost less than the virgin margarita that they made me that was basically just like their 
orange syrup mixed with yeah. what club soda or something. Yeah. I don't know. And it was just like, what the heck? You're charging me like eight bucks for this? Like there's no alcohol in it. Yeah. So I just think that the uh it can't be just pregnant ladies out there who are looking for the non-alcoholic beverage selection. I feel like there's gotta be a market somewhere or like artisanal grape juice maybe as an alternative to wine or sometimes I want a fancy pop. Yeah. That's interesting that you bring that up because um, I listened to a podcast called The Speakeasy, which is by some bartenders in New York. And they had an episode last week that I listened to where there's a guy that works for, I think it's called Sweetwater Social. And I think it's like a bar that's focusing on low ABV or no ABV cocktails for like that exact Mm -hmm. sort of thing. Uh, And and I think that that is increasingly becoming popular because people want to have like you know, I want to have a cocktail at lunch that I can like have and go back to work or like, you know, your right. situation where you're pregnant and you want to have a drink. So you want to know ABV cocktail. So I think that that's catching on and I think it will probably take time to get around. But yeah, well, I think any entrepreneur listening should uh, <laughs> jump on that bandwagon. I think Nat and I maybe should go into artisanal grape juices. Mm. But well, we went to the uh, the watershed I guess it's the watershed. Yeah, the watershed kitchen, which is attached to the watershed distillery, which uh, is in Columbus. Uh, They make four peel gin and some other offerings. They have a nice restaurant there. Their drink menu is outstanding. Some of the best design work for a drink menu I've ever seen. It's really cool. They they did note drinks in their drink menu that could be made with no alcohol, but I think they were still $12 a piece. Well, we don't know for sure. Yeah, I didn't I order one know, for that reason. It looked as if they were still twelve dollars. It, it definitely a piece. <laughs> looked like they were still going to be twelve dollars. But um, anyway, and having been gouged other places, because I really feel like, yeah. come on, if there's no alcohol in this, why is it? Why is it more than you know? Yeah, five dollars. So I mean, I pulled my weight because you know she's eating for two and I'm drinking for three. But you know, it was just she should have been allowed to get a, a mocktail there. <laughs> I mean, I could have. I know. I'm looking forward to going back there when I can partake of the actual drink, yeah, alcoholic drink menu. Yeah. I think the other thing is that you're, you're warning about if you're going to become pregnant. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. If you're going, to, all, for all of you out there who are thinking about becoming pregnant, make sure when you have Ooh, your last drink before you stop drinking Make sure that that drink is worth it because I had like a 4% grapefruit grapefruit beer. Yeah, it was a poor choice. And the thing is, you know, I like, it isn't that I dislike grapefruit beer. Like that um, Shiner Ruby Red is pretty good. But this one was, I don't remember what, if it was Leinenkugels or something, but it had that very like fakey, shandy taste to it. And that was the last drink I had before getting pregnant. And I, I've regretted it these eight and a half months. And so she's going just, on a I did it all wrong. awesome bender as soon as she's, <laughs> no. she's back on the wagon. Have you gotten to the level of thinking about what your first drink is going to be? Ooh. Well, see, it's a good question. <laughs> but I, I think the thing is, so I'm planning to breastfeed. So I'm going to gotcha. take it so easy it, right? if it were... If you were asking me, like, not considering external factors, it would definitely be a bourbon drink. Maybe just straight up bourbon meat. I mean, 
I I I'd be up for a glass of bourbon. But I think I will just uh, go a little easier, maybe a small glass of wine with dinner two hours before any breastfeeding session. That seems safe. We have successfully combined pregnancy uh, drinking with Team Serious. <laughs> we, we have done a good job yeah, on do, this Do podcast. we need to make some other is, legal is disclaimer? I don't know. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm all about blurring the lines. Yeah. It's happened again. You've wasted another perfectly good hour listening to Serious Vintage. I'm Jeff Mose. I'm Nat Mose. I'm Elizabeth Eshelman Mose. And I'm Josh Chappell. And we hope you'll join us next time for more Serious Vintage. Take a little trip, take a little trip, take a little trip and see. Take a little trip, take a little trip, take a little trip with me. I'm sorry it's weird to be the only non-Mos on the podcast, JC. Do we need to get some therapy for you? I think we just need to get him to change his name. No, it's fine. We've already clarified that I'm special. One of us should adopt him. Talk it in your goblin voice.